0: If you were in Fitzroy a few Sundays ago, you may recall how Brent shared something of his journey towards becoming a chaplain in the Royal Navy. One thing that stood out for me was the intensity of the training. It was physically demanding. I can still visualize the the blisters. If you want to be a chaplain in the Royal Navy, you have to be prepared to suffer. For Brent, there was no gain without pain. And that's true of many aspects of life. If you want to be a successful student, you must be prepared to work hard. I can remember one of my lecturers reminding us when it came to preparing for exams, There is no inspiration without perspiration. Or think of an athlete. I have tremendous admiration for sprinters. Uh, For weeks, months, if not years, you train in the gym and on the track in order to run as fast as possible. And no doubt there's great pain and suffering in the training, all those hours spent preparing for something that will last 10 seconds. If you're in the 100 meters, all that pain and suffering in the hope of winning. Uh, What's all this leading to? Well, the theme that I want to explore with you this morning is this. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you must be prepared to suffer. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you must be prepared to suffer. That's not simply my observation about the Christian life. I'm not sure that I've got a lot of suffering to present to you this morning. It's what the Apostle Paul has to say when he writes to the Christian believers in Rome. And the next few minutes, we're going to explore a couple of things that Paul has to say on the theme of suffering. But before we jump into Romans, let's listen to something that Paul writes about his own experience because he was no stranger to suffering. Here's what he tells the Christians in Corinth. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches who is weak and I do not feel weak who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn that's a lot of suffering it makes some of the things that I complain about seem minuscule And suffering takes many different forms. It's not just about being persecuted or ridiculed for being a Christian. For Paul, it involved everything from being attacked physically to being without food or being deprived of sleep. Paul even mentions the pain that comes from seeing others suffer. Suffering is something that comes to all of us. No one escapes. That's why I thought it might be worth consideration this morning. So, what motivated Paul in the face of suffering? How did he cope with it? In writing to the Christians in Rome, Paul has several things to say about suffering. He mentions suffering at the beginning of chapter 5, and this is what he writes. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Paul packs a great deal into these few verses. We could easily spend a long time unpacking almost every phrase. He writes about being justified through faith. He speaks about having peace with God. He mentions the concept of grace. He refers to the hope of the glory of God. And he speaks about the love of God being poured into our hearts. Uh, There's probably a sermon series just in those headings. But I want to pass over all of these things, important as they are, What I want to focus on now is his reference to suffering. Look again at what Paul says in verse 3. We also glory in our sufferings. That may seem a strange thing to say. Suffering is not something that we glory in. Um, Not unless you happen to be a grumpy old git. Um, To quote the title of a book that I saw last weekend, Paul makes the important observation that suffering produces endurance. Uh, uh, Slightly different on the the screen there. Uh, Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. It's an interesting chain of connection Suffering, perseverance, endurance, character, hope. For Paul, suffering is linked to hope. Now, that's a very unexpected connection to make. Hold on to that idea for a few minutes while we look at another passage in Paul's letter to the Romans. In chapter 8, David read this for us. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul contrasts here present sufferings with future glory. Nobody says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What does he mean by this? Why does he speak of the glory that will be revealed in us? What's he getting at? The next few verses help explain what Paul has in mind. In verse 19, we read, for the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Now, what does he mean here for the children of God to be revealed? Are, are they not already apparent? Looking to the future... Paul anticipates a time when those who are the children of God will become evident to the whole of creation. And as we read on, it becomes clear that he associates this with the resurrection of the dead. Let me read on. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul uses here, the metaphor of pregnancy. The present world is like a pregnant woman. Eventually, creation will give birth to the children of God when the resurrection of the dead takes place. That's what the redemption of our bodies is referring to there. When this happens, the children of God at the resurrection will be revealed in all their glory. We will be transformed and become glorious. Uh, you might want to ponder that as you look around and think of other folks, but something of the glory of God will be evident in us at the resurrection of the dead. The Apostle Paul recognizes that this world is not as God intended it to be. This world is in bondage to decay. It's a world marked by frustration. Paul speaks of creation being liberated, being set free. Paul is thinking here of the renewing of the earth that will occur following the return of Jesus. And he associates with this the glory that will be revealed in those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. This glory will be evident in those who are resurrected to eternal life. Paul's speaking here about something truly remarkable. In the Bible, Paul is not alone in expressing this hope of future glory. You find the Old Testament prophets speaking of a new earth and a new heaven's. Listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 35, in which he speaks about the transformation of the natural world and of human bodies. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Isaiah pictures here the transformation of a barren desert into a place of lush vegetation. It's a vivid change, change for the better. Isaiah then speaks of how people will be transformed. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. The blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute will be made whole. All will be healed. Bodies will be restored to full vitality. Isaiah speaks here, I believe, of the resurrection life. And in the New Testament, the healing miracles of Jesus anticipate this resurrection, this renewing, this restoration of bodily health to people. Isaiah then returns to the image of the desert being made alive. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Adopting the imagery of exiles returning home, Isaiah has a vision of people coming to the new Jerusalem, the eternal city of God, the climax of creation. Centuries later, the Apostle John is shown a vision of this future city. He writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And the rest of the chapter goes on to describe with rich symbolism this holy city where God will dwell with his people. The Apostle Paul also believed in this future city of God. In Galatians 4, he contrasts the present Jerusalem with the Jerusalem above. Paul sees himself as a citizen of this eternal city. And for this reason, he compares his present transient experience of life with the eternal life to come. To comfort and encourage Christ's followers in Corinth, he writes these words. And you may resonate with them as you get older in life. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Once again... Paul contrasts the transient life of the present with eternal life. What we see today will pass away. What we don't presently see will last forever. Christians are sometimes ridiculed for promoting a pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die mentality. But Paul understands well how a vibrant faith in the world to come can influence our lives in the present. It can be a source of deep strength when we face terrible challenges. When we know that present suffering will give way to future glory It helps us cope with the suffering here and now. Had we more time, we could usefully explore in detail the source of Paul's confidence in the life to come. Why does he believe in this life to come? Let me finish, however, by picking up on one important reason for Paul's hope of future glory. It is the love of Christ for us. Paul is confident that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then note the suffering. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. with this remarkable assurance of God's love, let's encourage one another. When suffering comes in whatever form, let us hold firm to the hope that we have. Let's be confident that the one who has promised to love us will never disappoint us. Let's always remember that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we pray that these words would be a source of strength to us, a truth that we may share with others, a word of encouragement that when we suffer, when life is difficult, it is transient and there is something better something more wonderful, something more glorious to anticipate. We pray that you might fill us with this hope through our faith in Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.